You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 14. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. Hey guys, we got another Q&A episode for you today. Uh, we seem to be running some themes in this last set of questions that we got. So we're going to be addressing some things, including how to overcome anxiety and approach someone at a kink event, why people on dating sites send absurd messages, even though they never work or shouldn't work. If you cheated on your partner and it's been a while now, should you go back and tell them? And on the flip side of that, can you be friends with a partner of yours who's broken your agreements? And we've got some more questions besides that. If you want to send in questions of your own, you can go to atouchofflavor.com forward slash ask and ask your question online or, and you'll hear one of these in this show, you can call our voicemail line at 833-ASK-TOF1. That's 833-ASK-TOF and the number one, and you can leave a voicemail. And if we select your message, we'll play it on the air. We have a lot of resources in this show, including uh, some prior episodes. So make sure you go to the show notes at atouchofflavor.com forward slash zero one four and take a look at those. All right, let's get started. All right, Cassie. So what's been new since the last time we recorded? Not a whole lot. Uh, Pretty much same old life stuff. We had a whole bunch that happened right before the last episode and... Since then, not a whole lot. Uh, we got our yard cleaned up, and I had an interesting conversation with the lawn guy. What was that? So a few months back, um, before we had our lawn done, the lawn people actually did our neighbor's lawn, and they noticed that our partner had given them like Slim Jims and water because they were out all day, and we were really happy that they were cleaning up our neighbor's yard because it was a house that had sat uh, open for a long period of time. So they did next door. Yeah, they did next door where the not nice guy lives now. Um, but before he moved in, it was a disaster and they came over and Amanda was like, it's really awesome that they're cleaning up the uh, yard. Let's give them some slim gyms and some waters. And I was like, sure, we need to get rid of the slim gyms anyway. So she went over and gave it. So fast forward now to this week, And we actually ended up hiring the same company, which, by the way, are really awesome, did a very good job. And uh, they were out. And the owner of the company had talked to you quite a bit because we had been, you know, telling him what to do and all that. And then it kind of dawned on him that Amanda lives here, too. And he was like, is she your sister? Which I don't understand why everyone thinks that um, that Amanda is my sister. Because you're both white girls with blonde hair. And we're... I, we're very, very light-skinned and have freckles. So, I mean, I can see somewhat of the resemblance, but we don't look nothing alike. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> he was like, so, is that your sister who lives there? And I said, no, my partner. And he looked at me like, business partner? Like, what kind of partner? And I was like, partner, partner. 
And he paused for a minute, but then he was like, really? That is really awesome. He's like, so is it just you and her and then you and your husband? And I said, no, that's a different kind of poly. And he was like, I think I've heard that word before. And I said, yeah. And he's like, uh, is it polyamory? You know, he was stumbling over it. And I was like, polyamory. And he's like, so she's your partner and he's your husband. And I said, no, 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 no. Actually, we're, we're all together. And he was like, that's really cool. And I said, yeah. And he was like, oh, well, how does that work for Rigel? And I said, what do you mean? And he was like, I don't know. I have one wife bugging me all the time. And I was like, there is a vanilla person who actually gets it. Yeah, <laughs> I have to explain that to people all the time. They're like, you know, and I, I, I think I, we talked a little about this in the email for the last episode. We just did it on the desire gap and in, in in relationships. But you know, everybody like vanilla people. When I first tell them about our relationship, they're always like, like, oh, you must be getting so much pussy. And it's like, okay, I, I could get pussy not having to date people like we can just go out to a scene party and I can hook up and it is a lot easier like relationships are a lot of work like people don't understand the additional work that comes along with actually building a relationship like all they can think about is sex like sex is easy it's the relationships that are difficult I mean and worthwhile but difficult (laughs) that's hilarious that's yeah it was the first interaction I've had with a vanilla person who really got it and and he was like so that must be a lot of work and a lot of lot of having to have conversations and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, good for you guys. He was like, that's a lot of commitment. I don't know if I could do more than one partner, but good for you guys. And I was really excited to finally have a vanilla person actually get it. And we sort of talked a little bit more about polyamory and how our relationship worked. And one of the things that he mentioned was that Maybe he gets it because he has had um, like his step parents and stuff like that in in relationships and having to deal with having like two sets of parents and having to watch the interactions of like ex-parents and things like that. And that you get a little bit more of a full picture of how different adults having to work together, not necessarily in the same sort of relationships, but all having connective relationships and how much work and how difficult that can be. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I didn't even actually, it's funny because I didn't even know about this conversation. Yeah. I didn't get to tell you about it. So I was like, this is really cool. I was like, cool, cool vanilla person. And I think he had some thoughts as far as the whole like step parents and divorce parents. And and he was on the right track of different people having to work together. I mean, it's a little bit different in a group poly situation, but that idea of we all have to kind of work together and figure out how to have productive conversations and get around things with different personalities than just two. That was good. Anything else that I don't know about that we should... (laughs) No, that was really uh, it. We we haven't had a whole ton of lot going on aside for work on the house and uh, the yard this oh, week. As far as good stuff, I guess. Yeah. So we did want to give a shout out, though. We had one of our, our longtime friends in the kink community, Sir Crovax, passed away this past week. He'd been fighting with brain cancer for few years now. Yeah, it's been a while. He was actually um 
he, he lived in the Baltimore area for a while, and he actually helped out a lot with Touch of Flavor. He taught a lot of classes for us. He donated some of the equipment that we have and things like that. Uh, really good, really good guy. So we did want to give him a shout out. We're going to miss you. Yeah, he was a good guy. He did a lot of a lot of classes, and most likely if you went to a fucksaw class. Anywhere around here. Anywhere <laughs> around the East Coast, he was the guy who taught that class. Um, and uh, he was really amazing and awesome. And one of his big things was Ohana, which is from uh, Lilo and Stitch, which means family. And he thought of the King community as his family. So we wanted to uh, give a shout out. Yeah. That's actually the second kind of major kink figure in our lives. He's passed away this year. Master David passed away earlier this year before, uh, I think actually before we started recording this podcast Yeah, at all. Um, so yeah, so, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's a good reminder that, uh, it, time, time is very limited uh, to spend on our relationships. And once it's, uh, once it's run out, you can't get it back. So spend time with the people you care about while you can. So questions. <laughs> you got all emotional with me for a minute. <laughs> I did. I did. It's been, it's been one of those years. Um, all right. Questions. So. We're going to answer your guys' questions. This has been really cool because the more we do these Q&A episodes, like I think last time we filled up on questions like what, like within 24 hours of putting out the last Q&A episode. Yeah, when when we put them out, we tend to get a lot more. So even if we aren't putting out a Q&A episode, you can send in, in uh, questions. You don't have to wait until a Q&A because then we get uh, sort of uh, rushed with questions all at once. Yeah, but all right. So we're going to start with something from our voicemail line. Please leave your message after the tone. Hi, this is Elliot, 40, in Baltimore. My question is, what are some of the ways to overcome anxiety in a kink venue in order to actually talk to someone? It can be very intimidating. I have an easier time talking to a crowd where started a one-on-one conversation at a kink event will send ice down my spine. My own attempts with trying to talk to people have created a fun kinky game of strip sword fighting that you guys have participated in and hopefully enjoyed and are free to talk about as much or as little as you wish. Thanks. Lord, so do we, do we start with the question or with the strip sword fighting? I don't know, man. I mean, he's... So, okay. So, uh, Elliot actually has come to a few of our events. He is the strip sword fighting guy, which is awesome. Uh, if you've never done the strip sword fighting thing... Um, Think like it's like foam swords... It's and like any whatever piece of clothing gets hit, you have to lose. And then, uh, you know, first person naked loses the game, which has led to some really interesting, uh, interesting things. We tend to not go for socks anymore because it's really hard to hit somebody in the socks. <laughs> but we do it at Arvis. It's awesome. It's always been a huge, huge, huge attraction. And thank you, Elliot, for doing that. And if we have any other event organizers listening to this, you should totally contact us and take Elliot up on his strip sword fighting stuff around here because it is incredible and everybody always has a blast. So the question. First of all, what he's doing is is a great idea. Um, Elliot, by kind of initiating things and creating a situation where you can socialize with people is an awesome idea to start with. That being said, as an organizer of kink events and and doing kink uh, classes and other sort of kink socials, 
One thing I will say is that it has its benefits, but it also has its downfalls. Because you're organizing things and because you are sort of running something, it makes it very hard to have really deep, connective conversations because you're sort of distracted by things. Yeah, we we play and talk less at our own events that we run than any any other events that we go to. Like we play less with people and we talk less with people. And even with um, you know, Zappoff, for example, which is an event that we've run for years now and almost runs itself, still, you know, we do more stuff going out to other people's events. So I agree with you on that as an organizer. I think the second part of this whole question comes down to what kind of event are you talking about when you say going to a kink event? Because approaching somebody at, say, a party is very different than approaching somebody at perhaps a munch or something at a bar that is actually a social event. You know, my experience has been that it is, it's hard a lot of times to approach somebody cold at a kink event because people, when they come to kink events, generally... They're already sort of uh, got plans made for play. They have things set up and they're usually not there to just hang out and talk with people. They're there on a mission to do their play. Um, And if they are trying to talk and socialize, it's because they have people there that they already know and are trying to socialize with. So trying to come in as the person that doesn't know somebody to socialize is really hard there. But you mentioned munches and munches are a great place to go out and meet kinky people and actually be able to have social interactions. Yeah. You know, as far as events, most, a a lot of people, when you go to events, either they're coming with somebody and, or they already have scenes organized with people who are there. And so between, you know, that, right. And then whatever you have organized, Um, and then, you know, the fact that they tend to be loud, there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, our events, there's like laser tag going on at, 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 you know, zap and whap and things like that. Uh, you know, like I said, music's loud. People are generally have stuff scheduled to do. It it can be really hard to really sit down and talk to people at events, even people that you already know, to be honest with you. And I think that brings up another point is that in between all of the loud music, your plan scenes, your plan interactions, and whatever activities are going on, you also sort of have your obli- like uh, obligation to your friends to say hello. So in between those, you're like, I've got to say hi to so-and-so who I haven't seen in three weeks or this person I haven't seen in a few months. So those in-between moments are actually filled in with sort of obligations to talk to people that you already know. So if you're going to talk to people at kink events, and I generally tell people, don't expect to go out to kink events and hook up with somebody that you don't already know. I'm not saying it's impossible. We actually have a blog post I'll link to in our show notes on pickup play, um, especially at larger events like camp events where there's enough time to kind of meet somebody and schedule something later in the weekend. But, you know, as far as going to events and just seeing most people, even if they're going to events without something scheduled and they're going to pick up somebody and play with them there is generally people that they already know just because it is so hard to, uh, to meet somebody and coordinate something like that and get on their schedule at an event if they don't already know you. 
What are some tips that you do have as far as actually, if you are going to try and just cold hook up with somebody or hook up with hookups, a strong word, but you know, like set up a scene or approach somebody socially at a kink event, which I think are kind of two different things. Yeah. And I think Elliot's question was more based on trying to make a connection socially, socially dating play. Um, So I'm going to address that first, which is, first of all, go in with the idea that you're not necessarily going to have a deep conversation. Like go into it with, I'm just going to talk to this person, say hello, and see if it goes anywhere. Uh, Don't set your expectation real high that it's going to be a deep conversation. So don't start it that way. Typically talk about things that are going on there, uh, experiences that they've had in that venue or Uh, interactions that they're having that evening. Something that is not super personal, but allows for questions and further conversation if you get the opportunity. So if you're asking about the venue or other events they've gone to, you can find, you can ask more questions about play they've done or other events they've gone to. So you can extend the conversation. So leave it as a very open conversation to be able to make a connection. And I will say too, I think, you know, since you're saying don't expect it to go too far or too deep, you know, if if you are hitting it off, try and get contact information so that you can talk later in a more personal, you know, in a more personal uh, dynamic, whether it's on the phone or via message or, you know, setting up coffee or something along those lines. Yeah. And what I was going to say is a lot of times if you're at a kink event, everybody is very open to giving their fet life. And Although that wouldn't be the form of contact I would say use forever, that's a good in. Like friend the person on FetLife, say hello, exchange a message or two, and then you know try to meet for coffee. But typically if people are out at uh, an event, it's pretty easy to be like, oh, hey, what's your FetLife? And be able to connect with them that way. So if you are trying to hook up and do play at a kink event, With somebody that you don't know already. Yeah. Again, this is going to be difficult. It's not usually going to probably amount to much because usually that doesn't happen, especially if it's something where it's a one-night event. Uh, But when you're approaching somebody, don't just ask them for play right off the bat. People tend to kind of be like, ugh, with that. So talk to the person for a few minutes. At least have some sort of other interaction of saying hello, asking them how their evening is, be a person, talk to the person, don't just ask them for play. Um, Once you have a little tiny bit of a conversation with them, uh, I suggest asking what the person's into before asking to play. And there's two reasons. One, if you guys don't match on what you uh, are going to play with, like if you're both submissive and both like the bottom, but don't like the top at all, it gets that out of the way without that awkward having a question of, hey, would you play with me? And then finding out later that this person is not somebody that you're going to be able to play with. Two, if they say, oh, I'm into X, Y, and Z, and you're into X and Y, you can ask to do that with them. You can ask them to do one of those particular activities with you. So that's my suggestion. Again, this is going to be very, very difficult uh, to do, but it does work sometimes. So let's talk about approaching somebody, let's say at a munch, because I do think that's a better place to try and approach somebody. Uh, You know, if you're trying to strike up kind of a social connection and maybe get along, uh, set up something later, like a date or something like that, if you think that you guys are going to get along, or even to set up play later. 
So just some general things when you are approaching people in general, right? I've, I've personally had to do a lot of learning over the last couple years how to strike up conversations with people because I am not the most socially adept person. Uh, and I've really, you know, and, and I'm in a job where I have to talk to people a lot. And I've really, between that and social life, had to learn how to talk to people. And it's still a skill I actively work on. But just a couple of the quick tips that I've found incredibly helpful. You find somebody that you want to strike up a conversation with. First thing is to find something to talk about in the moment. Maybe a book they're reading. It may be a comment on something else that's going on uh, where you're at right now. Uh, you know, I, a lot of times, if I don't have anything, will ask people, you know, like if they had a good weekend or if it's coming up on the weekend, like if they've got anything fun planned for the weekend, just anything like that, but a question, something you can ask a question to get them to start talking to you about something that's currently going on and keep asking questions, right? Because people like to talk about themselves. And, you know, especially if you're talking to women, a lot of times men just like to talk about themselves, a lot and don't really sit there and listen. So, you know, once you get, uh, say that they, you ask them what they're doing for the weekend and they start talking about how they're going to go run a marathon, which is on my mind just because it's a conversation I just had with somebody, then you can start talking to them about marathons and ask them questions about that. And you can kind of strike up a conversation. And eventually you want to find the me too things. You want to find something that you can identify with, with them and, and start talking to them a little bit about that. So, uh, say that they start talking to you about marathons and you've done a little running in the past and you can talk about that or anything along those lines. But those are a couple of, of basic, simple steps is, you know, approach them, find something that you can talk about in the moment, a question you can ask them to get them talking and then look for, keep asking questions until you can find the me too things and kind of do that. And I found the absolute easiest thing to do, and I'm not always so great about doing this, but to be to practice talking to one or two strangers a day and just to get out and make yourself do it. Not people you're romantically interested in, just people in general to practice that art of going up to somebody and striking up a conversation. If you have anything to add to that, and then I'm also curious if you can address what he's asking as far as approaching people one-on-one -on -one versus in group settings. Okay. So first of all, all that advice is really good. That's actually a, some of the first advice I give my clients when I work with them. I wonder where I got some of it. <laughs> to add on to that just a tiny bit, uh, when I work with my clients, I talk about every interaction is a good experiment. It's a good social experiment. So when you're out and you're practicing this, don't just practice on the people that you are romantically attracted to. Do it with everybody, different age ranges, different genders, and you'll get better at it. And it'll become more natural for you versus only doing it when you're attracted to somebody because that's under a very high pressure situation. So by doing it with people that you really don't care how those social interactions go, it makes it become a natural thing for you that isn't pressure when it does come time for that moment when you're approaching someone who you're really, really attracted to. So as far as in groups versus individually, when you're in a social setting, especially a kink social setting like a munch, most likely you're going to start off in a group, like a bunch of people. Um, and that's fine. Start your your conversations with chit-chatting and, and 
being involved in the conversation. And that requires being a little bold and sticking yourself into the conversation. Be that person, respond to things. Don't own the conversation. Don't be a conversation hog, but definitely take part in the conversation. If you're a quieter person and you tend to sit conversations out and just listen, don't do that. Uh, Get involved, speak your opinion. You probably have an opinion about something, but get involved in the conversation. It's usually fairly easy once you're involved in a conversation to start having little mini conversations with somebody. Um, As someone who ran a munch, most of the time things would start off with five or six people having a conversation about one subject matter and everybody sort of tuning in. And then people start splitting off into their own little conversations that branched off from that. And that's a good opportunity for you, but you have to be involved in that first base conversation to be able to do that. Yeah. So in Elliot, you're saying that you're pretty good at those group conversations. So just, just to work on those skills. And the good thing is if you're in, in that group conversation, you can start listening for those little, the me too things, you know, for some things that you can ask questions on later. It's, it's easier to break that ice, but try and work on following that format of starting in the group conversation, listen, you know, t- to what the person is saying. And then when it comes time to move to a more one-on-one conversation, You can do that a lot of times, I think, by asking one of those, asking them directly one of those questions related to something that they've been saying, and then moving on until you find those little me too things and you can continue the conversation on. Or if you found a me too thing in the conversation, that's a good way to start an independent conversation. Like, I totally agree with you on that. And when you agree with people, they tend to be like really interested in the conversation because people love to hear that someone else thinks they're right. So if you already found a me too, that's even a better way to start an independent conversation. And last thing I'll say about this, and this isn't just a uh, like social munch thing. This is an everywhere social thing. And I actually run into the situation a lot of times at work when you're in a group conversation and then it is becoming a one-on-one conversation because you've, you've struck that me too, or you've struck that direct question of that person they're answering you. And other people are kind of losing interest in staying in the main conversation or splitting off in their own conversations. Um, positioning yourself, like physically positioning yourself. Cause I'll have to do this at work a lot of times where you'll have like five or six people. And then all of a sudden I'll wind up in a conversation in a more one-on-one conversation with somebody who's across the group from me. And I'll have to physically like relocate myself. So the two of us are kind of off to the side, not talking across the group and we can have that conversation. So hopefully that gives you some good stuff to start with and, uh, experiment with some of that stuff we talked about, practice talking to people one-on-one and write us back. Let us know how it goes. All right. Our next question is from Grace. Grace is 34 years old and she's from Washington state. Our teenage daughter, who's 14, got into our kink stuff and now will not stop talking to other people about our lifestyle. We have asked her to stop, but she doesn't seem to think there's a problem letting other people know. What's the best way to explain the problem while also not seeming like we are doing something wrong that she needs to hide? Okay. Well, first off, I don't think your daughter being aware is the problem necessarily. Our son has been aware, obviously not of the details, but you know that there is a power exchange relationship for years. I mean, since he was old enough to kind of understand the dynamics in the house. And as he's gotten older, you know, we like to say when your kids get old enough, they realize you're having sex. Uh, You know, he probably has some more specific ideas of what happens just from being in the house. I mean, 
Like, for example, he's seen the, the rope bag half cracked with rope. So he has a idea that we use rope in some sort of general sense. Uh, there are a couple issues here, though. Yeah, I think just first of all, as a 14 year old, your daughter should understand privacy and understand things that are not her business. And this whole start of this question was your daughter went into your stuff. Which I'm assuming is probably in your bedroom, which means that she's in your bedroom digging through your stuff to find it. Which is a violation of privacy. And I don't feel like this is a a topic that should be ignored with your daughter, that as adults, you should have things that are private. I think actually at her age, you should be teaching her privacy and teaching her that she has the ability to have privacy around certain things. And the fact that she kind of broke that trust, there should be a conversation around that to begin with, that it's just not appropriate for her to be violating your privacy. Yeah, we tell people a lot and we catch some flack on it, but we have a rule in our house that kids don't even go in our bedroom. Um, we've had to be a hair flexible on that for the first time in our lives this last couple weeks just because of the situation with our house and the bathroom right now is in our bedroom. But as a general rule, the in, our, our the entire time we've been together and any partner that we've been dating – we haven't allowed children in our bedroom and that's been to teach them to respect privacy and also so they don't accidentally walk in on something. And also we have more stuff in our room than we can even legitimately hide most of the time. I mean, we've had to make some concessions now and put some stuff away, but I mean, we have furniture and stuff in there. But along with that, we've also taught our son his right to privacy. Um, Things like now he's becoming a teenager. He wants to have extra time in the bathroom when he's showering things like that, that we allow him to have. There's times that he wants to just be left alone in his room and he's allowed to do that. So teaching mutual privacy and the ability to respect that on each other's parts, I think is very important. But stressing that your daughter should not be going through your things because that is inappropriate. Yeah. And you may, while you're trying to teach her that, which should be the goal, you may have to get some locking cases and lock up your kink stuff. I don't think that's a long-term solution, but it may be a short-term thing that you need to do um, if you feel that she might be going and getting back in your stuff again. Yeah. We actually talk in episode 009 about locking your bedroom door just so that way you can have sex or do kink activities. But in this case, you might want to get a lock on your door to keep your daughter out of your stuff. Just it's a lot easier to lock a door than trying to lock all Depends the in- how much stuff you have. Yeah, all the independent things that you may have in your room. But again, this is only a, a, a short-term solution. She's 14 years old, which means it's going to be harder to keep her out of things than it would if she was like a four-year-old or a six-year-old. So teaching her respect for privacy is the first thing. The second thing is... And it kind of goes along with privacy as well. You know, she's 14. She is old enough to understand the difference between what is public knowledge and what is private knowledge, even if something isn't wrong. And, you know, I understand that you guys don't want to make it seem like you're doing something wrong because that is always something with kids when you act like you're ashamed of something. That's one of the reasons that we 
don't bury our, our poly partners, you know, because then the kids think that you're doing something wrong. So I understand that. But at the same time, she's old enough to understand the difference between, uh, privacy when it comes to stuff like sex and things like that, and not necessarily it being her business and what is wrong to be doing. And a good example, fortunately, you have a daughter at this age. Most likely she has a period. Uh, you could actually use that as an example. Like you shouldn't be ashamed that you have a period and, and you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't have to necessarily hide, hide it from other people. But you don't necessarily want us talking to your friends about it. Exactly. And that probably would be a very good correlation for her that, you know, this might be something that I don't want all my friends knowing right now. So um, using that example might be helpful. And I'm just going to wrap this up with saying, I think it's always okay to tell your kids you don't have to lie to them. You don't have to pretend it's wrong. You don't have to act ashamed of it, but to tell them that stuff is just none of their business. And I think that when you do that, you reinforce them that it's nobody else's business too, because that's where we're at with our kid about kink stuff. You know, he knows, like I said, maybe some very general things, certainly not the details because we haven't told him, but whenever he gets the idea to ask questions that he really probably doesn't want to know the answer to, we will tell him that it's none of his business. And, you know, he's, understands that and that that's, you know, not everything is his business or anybody else's business, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. All right. So our next question is from Joseph. I'm 37 and my partner is 34 and we're engaged. How can I keep the kinky going throughout our upcoming marriage? So I guess what he's trying to say is how can he keep kink going throughout the rest of their marriage. And I think that part of that is not taking your sex life for granted. Uh, right now you guys are engaged. You haven't gotten married yet. So it's probably, there's probably a lot less, uh, a lot less responsibilities and things like that going on as you get married. If you guys decide to have children, things like that, uh, life gets hectic, but don't take sex or kink for granted. Make it a priority, make it something that you that you actually make a conscious effort to do as things get more hectic as you go through your marriage. Yeah. And I think as part of that, it can be very helpful to specifically set time aside for stuff, you know, as life gets more complicated and things like that. Um, I don't know if you guys are in the out, like, you know, in the public kink scene in your area or what that scene looks like because you don't have where you're at on here, but um, you know, setting aside time to go out to kink events if you can, um, setting aside time for just once you have a family for just you and your partner to go away. Like we will set aside vacations just specifically for kink stuff, being willing to keep adding new stuff to your relationship, you know, and to experiment and things like that as you go is important. Yeah. Part of that whole keeping the, uh, the kink up is novelty is novelty. Uh, it's only kinky the first time, right? So if it's only kinky the first time, maybe it's kinky the third or fourth. But if you get into a habit of this kink activity being the thing that is always your go-to, it's no longer kinky anymore. So adding some new things in as you go, uh, that novelty is really, really important. And we actually talk a lot about that in the episode that we did with uh, I'm going to butcher her name, Dr. Zahana. Jana. Jana. Yeah. Um, in it's e episode seven, Love Versus Lust. And there's a lot of really good stuff in there in regards to sort of keeping that lust alive. Um, but understanding that how your relationship looks right now is probably not going to how it's going to look years from now. 
but that the best way to kind of keep that energy up is to be conscious of it and to be willing to make some changes and and try new things. So that's some really general advice. I'll be honest with you, it's very broad question. And it's one that we've covered very specifically in like two episodes now that I really suggest that you listen to. And we will link to in the show notes. So that's episode 07, love versus lust and episode 13, which is about the desire gap in relationships. I will link to those in the show notes at atouchaflavor.com forward slash 014. And I recommend that you go and listen to those episodes. And those are two episodes just about this topic to help you on top of the couple little tidbits we were able to give you here on how to do that. Our next question is from Lynette. It says, I had a play partner who was also a friend who helped set some relationship rules. So they came up with some rules together. They broke a rule and I forgave them. And then months later, which is now, they broke another rule that they also agreed and made. I've stopped playing with them, but should I still even be friends with them knowing that they withheld information from me and broke my trust on many different levels? So this is one of those interesting things that happens you know, in the in the world that many of us are in where your friends are also many times your lovers or your play partners or Yeah. So I think the the first thing is, is that um we go to that whole sort of you hurt me once, shame on me, you hurt me twice. It's you hurt me once, shame on you. You hurt, fool me fool me once, shame on you, fool you twice, shame, shame on, on me. me. Yeah. Yeah, sort of situation. And I'm not necessarily saying that it's, you know, your fault. I'm not. That's totally not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is that once something becomes habit, it's one thing if it happened once and it was a misunderstanding or there was a small problem um, that was, you know, that happened. But if it's something where you guys established rules, your friend broke them, and then again, you establish rules and then they break them. This is sort of a big red flag. This is the the difference between sort of a an accident versus um, intention, which we actually talked to in uh, episode 002 with Charlie Grickman about consent violations versus consent accidents. And the big sort of difference there is the intent to do so. Well, I think you... I have a couple things to say about this, but I think you actually have a little bit of a story on this uh, kind of illustrates a similar situation we were in and, and then I'll, I'll kind of chime in with my two cents. So a, a few years ago, I loaned Rigel to a friend of ours, um, someone that we had played with several times um, from, she was on the bottoming end, but she wanted to top Rigel and we had discussed uh, sort of the boundaries and how the, the the makings and the workings of the scene that they were going to do uh, was going to work. And Rigel was not informed of how things were or were not allowed. So basically what ended up happening was the scene commenced and during the scene, she did not honor those agreements and Rigel was not aware of that. And... Uh, some issues with your friendship. (laughs) Yeah. It actually caused some issues between her and I's relationship. And one of the things that I, I sort of learned from this sort of interaction was actually before that there was a scene that her and I topped Rigel and there was some boundary pushing there to begin with. 
Uh, I was there to be like, uh, no, this is not the way it goes. And so that was twice that that happened. And really from that point going forward, my thing with playing with our friend or interacting with our friend is to understand that that's something she's going to do. And this is the exact reason why we always recommend that the bottom is in on the scene negotiations. I know it's fun to have the top negotiate for you, but there's a lot of issues with boundaries that can happen in that situation. But getting back to what you were saying, you know, I, I've, I've come to believe something about people over the years, which is you can only ever expect people to be who they are. You're not special. They're not going to change for you. And a lot of times in a situation like this, there is a history of behavior, maybe even not with you, right? Maybe you know about them pushing boundaries or breaking agreements with other people. And a lot of that comes down to partner selection, but you can't ever expect people to be different than who they are. If you know they've broken boundaries and pushed boundaries with other people, they're going to do it with you. So that's the first thing. Second thing is going to your question about the friendship, if you need to stop being friends with them. So a lot of that, I think, depends on your specific situation. Um, is the quality, whatever quality that they have that is not working for you, is that going to not just affect you in a sexual or a play relationship? Is that going to affect you in a friend relationship? Going back to our example with with this person, we know that you know the, the issues that have popped up with her are really only going to be issues in a scene setting. And if she's topping. And if she's topping, right? So we know that outside of that situation, these problems aren't going to likely arise. So, you know, whatever the specific problems is that you're having with this person, are those likely to be issues in just a friendship relationship where you aren't playing? And I think there's a second question. How hurt are you over this? If it was a uh, breaking of boundaries that, is a severe thing to you and you're super, super hurt, you have the right to not be friends with somebody. You have the right to say, this was too much. You're out of my life. And that's perfectly fine. So if it's not something that has pushed you to that, that far, then I think that first question you asked really is the second question. Right. And, you know, and in your specific situation, you know, we don't know the specifics of what exactly they broke or how that happened, but you do say they withheld information and they broke your trust. And trust is is just as important for a friendship as it is with, with partners. So it may be the case that if they broke your trust, that you don't want to be friends with them anymore. But that's a decision that you have to make based on what you know about, you know, what they what they broke, how badly they hurt you, how badly they broke your trust. And if that problem is going to pop up again with just a friendship and if that even matters to you with what they did. All right. So our next question is from shy. I'm betting that's not a real name. I don't think that's her real name. Uh, 24 years old. She says, I get so many crazy messages on FetLife and dating sites that can come off as so creepy or weird. I'm just curious in your experience if any of these crazy attempts have ever worked for anyone, it seems so obvious when guys are being a bit over the top that no girl would ever go for it. But on the other hand, wouldn't all the crazies die out if the stuff never worked? So this is just a spectacular. Like, I almost feel like this is like an exit. 
like a philosophical question. <laughs> right. Like, why is the world this way that makes no sense whatsoever? <laughs> You've gotten your own share of crazy messages on different sites. I have. Um, I have I have gotten everything from someone offering to send me their genitalia in a jar to uh, people messaging me sounding like the guy from Saul uh, to people just randomly trying to insult me into wanting to be their submissive, which I just can't even. Didn't one person offer to like put his balls in a blender on video for you? Yep. I had someone offer to put their balls in a blender for me. That was on the good old collar space years ago. Collar me. It was still collar me at the time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we, we, we as females get a lot of crappy messages. So let's let's try and attack this question that probably has no good answer methodically. Okay. <laughs> so A, I do think, well, I think I think everybody will agree offhand that women get more shitty messages like this than men. Why is that, Cassie? Oh my. Um I don't know. I mean, I I, I think part of it is a supply and demand. Um I think it is more difficult for men to find women online. So there is tons and tons of guys who are messaging. And typically with that whole large batch, you have also the batch of batshit crazy, right? Like you have the people who uh, send the crazy messages. So I think it's somewhat of a numbers game. Also, I think that women get a lot more messages than men get simply because in our culture, uh, women tend to wait for men to message them. So guys get less of the uh, off the wall sort of messages because they get less messages just to begin with. Okay. Now, secondly, we know that this person who sent you this message identifies as a dom or a top. Yeah. Right. Do you think that tops are more likely to get, female tops are more likely to get crazy messages than female bottoms? I don't know. I'm asking you. So that was part of the second, that, that part of what I was already saying, which is, so there's this pool. And I think that especially dominant women, she identifies as dominant, um, get even worse because they get the submissive types that think, well, if I offer these crazy things or I give these crazy things, that's what a, a dominant female's looking for. Or you get the flip side of that of the dominant men who are attracted to the dominant women and they're like, the only way to make them a submissive is to talk to them like shit. And neither one of those approaches happen. So I think being a dominant woman, they get more than submissive women, but I still think submissive women get a ton too. Okay. So next thing I'll say is I do think that to a certain extent, it depends on the site's that you're on. Now, certainly you will get crazy messages on any site, but I will say I feel like people who are putting themselves out as kinky on more vanilla sites tend to get crazier messages because I think it's people who really just don't understand kink and how to approach people and what kink even is, and they just send some stupid, crazy stuff. She's getting these on FetLife, which is bad, but you know, some other more vanilla sites, I think you're likely to get worse now. Okay, Cupid, what's been your experience with okay Cupid and crazy messages? Um, about the same as I get on Fet. Okay, um, but on other sites, do you get more? Yes. Okay. So I think that it really depends on the site. 
And it also sort of depends on, sometimes it depends on your profile too. Uh, If your profile is extremely over the top, you're attracting those over the top people. Um, so if you're, if you're a dominant or submissive, maybe tone it down. Like if you're writing something that's like, I'm the most domliest of dom, uh, tone, tone it down a little bit. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you go, who you are, what you identify as you're going to get crazy messages, especially if you are a female, right? So I, I, part of me just wants to drop to why doesn't all the craziness die down if this stuff never works. But I feel like I really have to ask before that, does any of this stuff ever work? I get this question a lot in my webinars because I do a a getting two kinky dates in two weeks online webinar. And I often get this question from uh, male folk who are like, well, has this ever worked for anybody? This, that, and the other. The truth is- Like I talk to people like Hannibal- yeah. And sometimes they talk to me back. That was a question I saw recently. Yeah. Things. Um, so here's the thing. If you do something enough, you'll eventually get a positive result. Eventually. Right. Like um, it's that whole a broken clock is right twice a day sort of thing. Like you'll eventually find somebody who is going to go, well, that's crazy. Let me respond back now. Granted, you might be getting that because they're curious, or you might be getting someone who is just as off the wall as you are. But even though it works very occasionally, you would probably have had much better success not being a douchebag. And then the question is, so since it hardly ever works, because I guess we have to say it, it occasionally works if a broken clock is right twice a day, but if it hardly ever works, why do people still do it? Why has the craziness not died out? My... My thoughts on it have always been this, which is I think the reason why it hasn't gone away is because it's easy and people flock to easy. Um, And I think that it's the easiest thing to do is to write an off the wall message, copy it and send it to 50 women than it is to take the time to craft a message that's independently for one person that isn't off the wall, but is going to grab their attention by actually talking about them and who they are and what you have in common. It's a lot easier to just send off a billion of the same thing. And you know, if you're sending off a billion of the same thing, the only way you're going to get a reaction is if it really is something off the wall. So people listen, if you don't know how to message people online or get dates online, and especially if you are, if you're one of these, these, people sending these stupid messages to people, or even if you're just, you know, somebody getting all these crazy messages and not having any success online, we have a free webinar that Cassie runs. Um, It's no longer called how to get two kinky dates in the next two weeks. It's now called four steps to find a kinky partner online. And it's all about using dating sites to find people who might be compatible with you, how to message them and actually get responses and how to actually set up meetings and get offline and actually meet people on dates in real life. So if that's something that you would like to learn, these classes are free. Cassie runs them. I will put a link in our show notes at atouchofflavor.com forward slash 014, uh, which is this episode number, or you can just go to atouchofflavor.com forward slash TKD because the name used to be two kinky dates and you can sign up there for the next one. All right. Our last question today is from Jesse, who's 48 years old. 
I am married, and I started a mostly online affair that escalated into one sexual encounter in early 2015. Then I started another, which also ended with only one sexual encounter a few months later. The second ended partially because of my husband and I's decision to pursue polyamory, and I felt like it would not be right to continue with the person I cheated on him with. Since then, we have had other partners, and Polly has been going well for us. After almost two years, I am feeling strongly that I should tell him. Should I tell him after all this time? The question I keep going over is, am I telling him for him, or am I telling him for me? I have so many feelings about this question. (laughs) So I know a lot of people, especially in the alternative lifestyles, kink, poly kind of space, kind of gloss over cheating. And I, and I will speak for Cassie as well, personally have an enormous problem with cheating. Because the thing is, it's not about, the, the problem doesn't come from having sex with somebody else, right? You can, I mean, we do that. I mean, you can do that all day long. That's not the issue. The problem is that it's a very, very serious breach in trust in a relationship that is incredibly hard to repair. And that causes deceit and lies and, you know, problems in so many areas. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where once it's done, it's kind of not reversible. Like you can't uh, reverse cheating on somebody. And over time, can you earn back trust? Can you earn things back? Absolutely. But you can't undo it. Like once that has been done, it really can't be undone. And the problem that you're facing now is that you haven't said something for so long. And really, this is a guilt thing at this point. Um, It's not about sex. And the reason why you're feeling guilty is because it was a betrayal of trust. Uh, So, and I'll also say, I feel like you're kind of stressing in this question that you've only had one sexual encounter with each of these people. And I don't think it matters the slightest little bit. Well, I mean, only, I guess, in that it was not a continual, you know, but I mean, still even having to cover it up for, you know, for this long now. And I think really, honestly, the fact that it's only one sexual encounter doesn't matter because as you stated in your question, you've had mostly online, on affair, uh, sorry, mostly online affairs that escalated into one sexual encounter, which means you consciously had these sort of interactions knowing where it was going to go. Um, And this was somebody that you knew online. So you had to make the conscious decision to escalate that relationship from an online one to an offline one. So what do you do now? Personally, I think that you should tell him. I mean, in a way, at this point, it's two years later. I doubt it's something that you guys are dealing with, even you having to cover it up or anything like that on an everyday basis. But the bigger problem here is that you know that there was this betrayal of trust. And I think as long as that's there and it's hidden, I think that it's going to cause problems for your relationship on your end, whether he knows about it or not. Flip side of that, though, is you have to face the reality that you tell him this. It may... I mean, well, it's definitely going to cause some serious problems and it could even result in in the ending of your relationship with him. Yeah, and with all that, with hiding it, then you fall into that realm of he may be able to find out eventually too. So it's that, it's, it's really a balance on, you know, where you're at with your partner and how you feel about it. And this goes into, 
you asking yourself if it's about talking to him about it or talking to yourself, you know, if, if it's for you or for him. And first off, it doesn't really matter. Um, but secondly, if this is something that you want to live with, because when we live with things that we're holding in that are lies, one, lies have a re- really weird way of resurfacing a uh, long time down the road. So there is always that option. If, if the other person that you fucked is still alive, there is a possibility of that popping up. Um, even if they're not, even if they're not, but uh, <laughs> there's, there's always, I mean, look at the, look at the Ashley Madison breach. Yeah. I mean, and you're saying an online affair. I don't know what sites you use, but I mean, you might've had a near miss with that, you know? Yeah. So there, there's always that, that chance that that may reoccur. The other aspect of it is, is do you really want to carry that fear around with you? Because um, it might be guilt of how you feel for your partner. Uh, it also could just be the fact that you are not enjoying the feeling of looking over your shoulder all the time. Not to like dismiss that you might actually feel guilty, but there might also be that concern of, do I really want to feel like I'm trying to cover my tracks all the time? So with all that, you really have to make that choice of if you're willing to deal with those things or the potential consequence of your partner leaving you. And I think, I think the last bit of all this for you to consider is, you know, it's been two years and, you know, I kind of said, it's probably not to a point where it's really, affecting you day to day anymore. But honestly, I don't know the situation. I don't know how often you see these people. I don't know any of this. So how many more times during your relationship with your husband are you going to have to lie about this, tell lies to keep this buried? And how is that going to affect your relationship over that time? So I think those are really the questions that you need to ask yourself. It's a very personal decision. I personally feel like the right thing to do is going to be to tell him and, you know, deal with what comes with that and be prepared for it. But that's a decision that you have to make. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1.